Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling as we discuss a number of new developments on this show, particularly new development in the snack and sweet category. Golden Corral adds brunch to their weekday menu, but leading our show, a newly released report by Pentelect Incorporated. This episode of the Food Focus podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. If you want to brew coffee like the pros brew coffee, make sure and check them out. Go to thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code FOCUS, that's F-O-C-U-S, for 10% off at checkout. We'll talk about them a little bit later on in the show. This report, the reason we're discussing it, is information has just been made more widely available after data initially came available in April to certain sources. But this This report displays what we've been suggesting on this show for months and several other analysts have been suggesting customers are shifting towards independent operators away from chains. Now, the reason this is important to note is because back last year when Paul Westrov, Stiefel, said that we were on the brink of a restaurant recession or even in a restaurant recession, there were a lot of people that really doubted that information. And part of what we had said is some of the legacy chain operators are seeing a recession in sales, but overall restaurant sales are remaining robust. And this is something that's borne out a little bit deeper by this survey. Legacy operators, chain operators are struggling and they're struggling in the mindset of the people eating there and the people consuming the food. And their market share is being captured by up-and-coming chains and local restaurants as customers increasingly seek specialty products and more individualized products. And first, Leighton, I think it's incumbent upon us to talk a little bit about the survey results, what the survey was, and how they measured customer attitudes towards both independent and chain restaurants. It's good to get a perspective from the customer, the customers that are going in and out of these restaurants on a weekly basis. And the underlying performance of these restaurants is incumbent upon why the people are coming in. And I think right now you can see the survey results really delve in and they do a good job of explaining what the customers are doing and what the millennials are looking for as they are tending to go to these independent operators a bit more than these nationalized chains. But First, we can look at the financial performance and Pentelec projects independent restaurants to outperform chains in terms of revenue growth. This is strictly in terms of the growth factor. We're not talking as far as overall sales are concerned. The national chains are still going to beat them in terms of that, but they project growth around 4 to 5% for these independent restaurants and just 2 to 3% for chains and this is over the next 3 years so until 2020 or so and to take a step back and look at the overall restaurant pie if you will in 2020 it means that 42% of sales are going to be made up of these independent restaurants while 58% of these national chains 
And this compares to currently where it's at about 4060. So we're not transitioning too much. However, it is pronounced enough to delve in deeper and see why this is happening or why we are trending this way. So as for the survey, they looked at 15 different attributes ranging from quality in the food to convenience and the social media presence that these independent operators have put out versus the national chains. And of these attributes, independents scored higher in 12 of the 15 categories and it was within one percentage point of a 13th category. Independent operators have actually the largest advantage in what they call the community-oriented and the is special attributes, up 29 percentage points and 28 percentage points respectively. And this is despite the faux local feels that other chains, these national chains, have. Uh, several come to mind. In fact, Applebee's and Chili's franchisees attempt to have this personalized, localized feel, talking about pictures on the wall, different sports teams that may be local to the area, either within the county or the state that they operate in. But other large gaps exist in what they call the personalized feel, up 26 percentage points, and the share my values feel, up 26 as well. Food quality was interesting, Trent, and we can delve into this a bit later, but food quality was actually perceived as being a bit higher with independent restaurants as well as good service. And these are the two attributes that you and I had talked beforehand about really being higher or should be higher with national chains because these are chains that have momentum and have the experience having been in the industry for dozens of years. And so for newer entrants, independent restaurants to come in and beat in terms of perceived food quality and service is very interesting because these are the exact things that these larger management teams look at day in and day out to see if they can improve and they always have those in-house surveys and they're always trying to one-up themselves so very interesting all of this data combined Trent really speaks to how the restaurant industry really is transforming before our very eyes. One other area in which independent operators were more successful than their chain counterparts were in menu innovation, and they were 16 percentage points above the perception of chains in that category. That's despite the constant menu refreshes we've begun to see at a number of chains. Of course, we talked about Ruby Tuesday not too long ago, overhauling their menu in an attempt to win back customers. Chili's is another example. They refresh their menus on a quarterly basis. A lot of other restaurants come out with limited time offerings, seasonal offerings. But I think where you see menu innovation on the independent operator front, they're trying things that are completely different, completely outside the mold of your traditional chain restaurant. The attribute independence scored most poorly in regarding the perception of customers was use of technology. They were 20 percentage points below chains and social media use where they were 11 percentage points below chains. These, though, are things when you're looking at the two of these that are easily fixed. It's becoming cheaper for independent operators to use things like Xeosks, which are mobile tablets that sit on the table and allows people to reorder drinks or even to pay from the table like you have a lot of larger operators use and what's more there are ad agencies on the local level more of them are folding social media into their services so if these independent operators these independent restaurants are using ad agencies they can potentially fold in social media to the rest of the agency services and that way manage to promote themselves use social media in a more effective manner so these two things i think are the most easily fixed in terms of perception but things like food quality and good service 
that's kind of like the Eldorado of every restaurant operator. So the fact that independents score so much more highly than chains in those areas, very important to keep in mind for the restaurant industry as a whole. And perhaps the most surprising, at least to me, is that independents rated much more highly in consistent quality. They were 11 percentage points higher than their chain counterparts in that metric within the sample size. And among many consumers, especially consumers that were used to attending restaurants in the 80s and 90s, this was one of the main allure of chains. You could visit a chain and get the same taste, whether it was McDonald's or whether it was an operator like Applebee's or IOP or Denny's. Get the same taste, the same food, wherever you were at. You got the same experience. It was a known quantity. But I think as millennials get older, they start to have more spending power in the overall economy. You have a more taste conscious generation as a whole. They care a little bit more about culinary adventure. They care more about the experience and a unique experience versus one they could get anywhere else. And not all people in the millennial generation are in that mindset, just like not all, say, baby boomers or Gen Xers are in opposite mindsets. But still, you have an increasingly food-conscious society. Part of this is helped by media. Part of this is helped by the internet, the fact that you can look up local operators that much more easily rather than having to go to a phone book if you were visiting a town. You can go to Yelp. You can go to those social media websites and be pointed in those directions. And I think independent operators are picking up on this. And when you see the quality increase for independent operators, I feel as though that's actually almost a reaction to the fact that independent operators have no choice but to succeed. If you're a larger chain restaurant and you have one facet of your chain or one location in your chain that's not doing all that well, you can survive. But if you're an independent operator with one or two or even three locations, same store sales declines over the course of two or three years at one of those locations can serve a massive detriment to your organization. So there's that pressure there to try and increase that consistent quality for consumers. And that seems to be borne out in this survey. Survey participants also found more value for their money at these independent operators. And Pentelect, the company that did this study, that produced it, and that published it along with some analysis of the study, they mentioned that it was somewhat surprising that independents are actually leading in what the industry considers operational metrics. Your operational metrics are innovation, value, service, food quality. It's long been assumed that your independent operators are going to lead in a lot of the emotional categories, your experience-based categories, but now they're surging forward in these other categories by multiple percentage points. It's not just a one or two percentage point lead in many cases, there are double digits here, and Pentelec came out with kind of their own hypothesis on what chain restaurants might be doing to respond to it. They spy the recent trend of mergers and acquisitions, something that you and I have been preaching both on the retail and food-focused podcast. A lot of coming together from very large operators, and this is in order to really shore up margins and become more profitable with less eye on top-line growth. However, that, of course, is going to happen when you merge very large companies. We see many acquisitions as of late, including Popeyes and others, but Pentelec does say that the system as a whole seems to still support chains and larger operators driving greater profitability at chains and if we expand this out, this really does make sense. And we were talking about this again. Another thing that we were discussing earlier was the fact that 
the top line revenue, when you compare these national chains and these smaller chains, you can really delve into the numbers here and see how these smaller independent restaurants really have to be fighting to differentiate in a multitude of ways. And obviously the perceived quality and need to get their own localized feel out there is some of the important points that they've made here with this study. But one thing that I did want to recognize is the fact that just four years ago in 2013, it was reported through a CHD expert research group study that 67.3% of independent restaurants inside the United States actually do less than $500,000 per year. Those are average unit volumes. And then if you contrast that to the national chains that we've been talking about, over 75% of those national chains actually do more than $500,000. So just to scrape by and try to increase your market share any little bit, independent chains are going to be trying anything they can. And to really contrast that with the M&A effort in these national chains, it's going to be harder and harder for them to compete. But it is interesting we talk about this upcoming technology with point-of-sale systems, kiosks, and those types of things. Those types of technologies are becoming cheaper and cheaper. So for those smaller, independent, localized efforts in the restaurant industry, it will become a little bit easier for them to compete one-on-one -on -one with these national operators that have a very stable a very consistent mechanism to check people out. And with the menus, it becomes a little easier to be innovative and change things up a little more often. So we talk about what chains can do to battle this trend. These national chains are really trying to attempt to be a little bit more nimble, a little bit more agile in the long run. Chains can attempt to find different ways to drive home a more personalized feel through regional branding. And this is something we'll talk about a little later as it pertains to Crackle Barrel's earnings report but they can take some regional tips from their management and franchisees to really give a different message in each particular market instead of having a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think this really makes sense, and it ties into what you were saying, Trent, about social media with the smaller chains. And we should note to our listeners that correlation does not always equal causation, so we don't quite know exactly what is driving home consumer belief that independent operators have better value and quality, but we can assume that innovation and localization is part of it, and there may be something bigger at work here. Overall, we can see that larger chains, as Pentelec mentions, there's a greater urgency for independent operators to stay on the cutting edge of food trends. And a larger operator can withstand several quarters of same store sales losses, whereas a smaller operator cannot. So it is very important, like I was saying, to have those smaller operators keep their nose to the grindstone. And they're able to feel what the customers want. They can get some feedback one-on-one -on -one instead of a national chain really reaching out to their customers. You don't see that too often for the exception on social media. So overall, Trent, this really does speak to how these national chains need to be a little bit more nimble. And you've mentioned some very good examples of how some recognized chains are doing this. One particular chain, and it's a growing chain that's built about 50% onto its store base in the last couple of years, is Mongolian grill chain Hoo Hot. They do a great job of including regional ingredients, but a regional product mix as well at their locations. A little bit easier to do with the Mongolian grill format where you can mix and match ingredients that are on the cold bar. But more than that, they reevaluate their ingredient mix on a regular basis. Just this last year, they added Brussels sprouts and cranberries to their ingredient bar 
Carr. These were two ingredients that their staff, but also their franchisees, saw as up-and-coming ingredients that were used in a variety of culinary ways. And so they added it to their cold bar. They also were one of the first restaurants to jump on the kale bandwagon as well. They did so prior to adding Brussels sprouts and cranberries to their cold bar. They also have voting systems on their website, which I found rather unique. Customers can actually vote for their favorite vegetable ingredient to be included as a permanent staple. And right now there's one of those votes going on. The vote features cauliflower, fresh jalapenos, bok choy, green onions, asparagus, and edamame few of those cauliflower bok choy edamame those are trending ingredients right now and they're giving their customer base a chance to declare which is their favorite and finally they have a regularly rotating mix of sauces as limited time offers and this is different from a restaurant like buffalo wild wings which also has a quasi sauce based menu usually when buffalo wild wings introduces a new sauce it maybe is not a limited time sauce sometimes they will add it in lieu of having another sauce on their menu. Sometimes they will just add it to the menu altogether, add it to their overall sauce stable. But another company that's having a lot of success with hitting the seasonal sauces in this area is Wingstop, a company that we've talked about quite a bit having financial success. So I think Hot in this case is an example of a restaurant that is in the growth stage but is still managing to make it such that their restaurants appear to be more local and cater to these local municipalities above and beyond just putting pictures on the wall of those sports teams like Leighton mentioned Applebee's doing. Going forward, the key four chains, I think, will be being on time to food trends. Like Hoo-Hot, for example, they got in at the right time on Brussels sprouts, which are now being used in a variety of ways at independent operators. Applebee's, though, was kind of a day late and a dollar short with their grill switchover when they switched from gas grills to their wood-fired grill. Ruby Tuesdays, who just revamped their salad bar, adding a lot of on-trend ingredients, didn't do that until it was too late and consumer sentiment regarding their business plummeted. So you've got to get out in front of this. And it's difficult because publicly traded companies are under constant pressure from shareholders and analysts to try and reduce costs. And one of the easiest ways to do this is to reduce research and development, but also to reduce some of your more edgy menu items. You have to take a chance that a menu item may fail because that's how you come up with the next great menu item. We see that one of the best-selling items on McDonald's entire breakfast menu is the McGriddle. That is an ambitious project that they undertook because it's got the sweet, it's got the savory all mixed in. It's a rather unique product. They took the chance, rolled it out, and they had a lot of success. And we'll talk about candy and sweets operators and snack operators doing the same thing for shelf-stable products, but in restaurants, oftentimes you just don't see this ambition. You don't see the research and development. When you see a limited-time offer at a typical FSR, it just seems to be an extension of the other things that are on their menu. It's not necessarily something that's unique. It's not necessarily out of the box. And I use Mod Pizza as an example of this. Mod Pizza just grew over 200 locations over the last couple of months. When you compare them to Pi 5, which is an operator that's struggling, Mod Pizza's recent limited time offer had ricotta, chicken jalapeno sausage, tomatoes, basil. It was a really forward-thinking product because of that chicken jalapeno sausage and the blobs of ricotta on it. Pi 5's most recent limited time offer... 
chicken bacon ranch pizza. Everyone has chicken bacon ranch pizzas, or at least a lot of operators do. That's not something that's unique. That's not something that's individual to that restaurant. That's not something that's forward thinking on the culinary front. So I think you can see just from a few examples that are out there how some of these chain restaurants need to think, need to operate in order to keep up with the independence, at least in terms of customer attitudes. Well, speaking of full-service restaurants, Cracker Barrel released earnings before market open on Tuesday, May 23rd, and gave investors several reasons to celebrate. The 47-year-old country restaurant and gift store had an up-and-down year in 2015 and 2016, and Cracker Barrel management is seeing this, and they're looking to stay on the upswing as they announced an increased guidance for the rest of 2017 and an increase in their quarterly dividend as well as a special one-time $3.50 dividend for shareholders. But they have been struggling to keep traffic levels up, so they have been focusing on improving margins and operations to keep financially healthy. And that really is the story here as they recognize contracting sales and traffic numbers, so they're looking elsewhere to help give value to their shareholders. Top-line revenue fell short of analyst expectations for their third fiscal quarter, coming in at around $700 million. Expectations were calling for around $713 million. They still beat last year's numbers, though, by about $300,000. So up slightly in top-line revenue, attributed mostly to more locations in the United States. Traffic was down per expectations by about 2.1% but was mostly offset by a increase in average check. This is a 1.7% increase in pricing. They have at least four quarters of increased average check because of those pricing initiatives. And they have been opening restaurants in 2017, and they're on track to have six new Crackle Barrel stores and three new Holler and Dash Biscuit House restaurants and locations. Comparable restaurant sales fell 0.4%, which is a modest decrease for the full-service restaurant operator. And retail or their gift stores fell about 4.7%. And speaking of consistency in quarters, those gift store sales have actually fallen in the last four quarters. And if you go back to the first quarter, they fell in double digits by 11.4%. But this really speaks to how management has been focusing on the restaurant aspect of their business. Obviously, gift store sales come in less as a percentage of overall revenue. So it's obvious that management is seeing where the majority of their contribution margins are coming from, and they are focusing on that. And you can't really blame them. As earnings per share came in higher than expected, producing $1.95 on a per share basis, versus the dollar 85 Wall Street had pegged this really speaks to those increased margins and not only a function of better margins but you can see how they improved the cash and liquidity throughout the quarter paying off some debt and giving less in terms of share buybacks as well as we'll look into a little bit later but overall you see operating margin increased by 60 basis points to 10.2% of revenue. And really the headline making news came from the increase in the dividend that I mentioned, which rose 4.3% to $1.20 a share. And if you go back, I did some quick math over the last six years, that represents a 450% increase in their quarterly dividend. And that one time special dividend I mentioned of $3.50 will be issued to shareholders of the company's common stock. It's payable to shareholders of record on July 14th and will be paid On July 28th, this is the third straight year that they've been awarding the special dividend. 
You mentioned their increased guidance now for the full year. They see earnings per share between $8.25 and $8.35 per share, which again speaks to those increased margins that Leighton was talking about. Even though same-store sales are relatively flat or even slightly down on the restaurant side, they still see earnings per share up from where they had initially guided. This is up from their previously guided $8.10 to $8.25 per share. So they expect it to come in just above the high end of their previous guidance. And so the question naturally comes, why are they having all this success with margins? Why are they seeing these margins increase when a lot of other restaurant operators are seeing margins shrink due to wage inflation? Well, Cracker Barrel, just like everyone else, they're seeing labor costs go up in a very tight labor market, but they're being able to offset some of these overhead costs with pricing increases. Food inputs are also going down somewhat significantly as we've talked about food deflation being able to offset some of these labor costs going up for other operators. Other restaurant operators really haven't had this offset their labor costs by as much as what Cracker Barrel has. Commodity deflation right now around 4.5%. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the prices are currently going down, but that they were able to lock in some favorable contract pricing in previous negotiations. And by they, I mean Cracker Barrel, as they see this commodity deflation put into place for this latest fiscal quarter. In terms of cash flow, the company has been performing far more crisply over the past nine months, their ending cash from operating activities is up 36% over last year at this time. Total ending cash and cash equivalents are up only 3.5%, but we can see that the company has reinvested more than they did last year, including opening several new locations over the last couple of months. And also they're investing in equipment on a store-by-store -store basis. So they're doing this rather than the share buybacks. They're investing in a lot of real estate. And this is something I happen to like for Cracker Barrel is that they own a lot of their own real estate. Ordinarily, the fact that their retail sales are down by as much as what they are would be worrisome for any other operator. But Cracker Barrel is not worried necessarily about paying regular rents. Basically, the larger store footprint that you have because of that retail store, what they call a country store being established next to or in conjunction with their restaurant is only going to make a little bit of a ding in terms of how their restaurant is taxed because of that larger square footage. It's not going to make a ding on rental rates because they do own so much of their own real estate and because their retail operations are sparsely staffed it doesn't really make a big dent in terms of their overhead. Basically, anything they get from the retail operation is gravy above and beyond what they're getting from the restaurant. I want to talk very briefly about some of their seasonal limited time offers that they're rolling out. In fact, recently, earlier this week, as a matter of fact, on May 22nd, they unveiled campfire meals, which are foil-wrapped all-in-one meals for the summer. This is the second time they've revisited this concept. The idea, of course, is that they're attempting to simulate grilling or a campfire type picnic they have two choices on this campfire meals menu they have campfire chicken which is a half chicken seasoned with campfire spices carrots red skin potatoes corn on the cob onions and tomatoes they also have campfire beef which is beef roast corn red skin potatoes carrots tomato wedges and onions and they also have a dessert limited time offer to go along with this promotion and Leighton if you guessed that it might be s'mores because it's a campfire themed menu you would be correct everyone always does s'mores when it's a campfire themed or outdoors themed menu 
menu. And in this case, Cracker Barrel is no different with their limited time offers. And Layton, they've also recently opened up their first location on the West Coast. We've covered their significant southeastern coverage in the United States, but they've talked in the past about stretching their footprint. And finally, the rubber is meeting the road as they open their first Portland area location in April. They did open that first West Coast location in Tualatin, Oregon, which is around the Portland metro area. As with most of their locations, it is right off the interstate. This is sort of a theme that they have and really ties into what I was trying to explain earlier in the first story and that they've really broadened their marketing efforts to individual locations. They, in fact, talked about their billboard marketing. In fact, they have 1,600 active billboards inside the United States that they either own or lease out. And they talked about refreshing all of their billboard ads and really trying to tailor them to their specific areas. The company also released plans for three more Portland locations in ready succession. And in the press release, it's interesting, Nick Flanagan, their senior vice president of restaurant and retail operations, said that they've sourced high-quality ingredients from the West Coast for its stores for many years. So not only the marketing, but the actual food inputs, they're trying to tailor and create a more localized feel. Again, tying into the first story about independent restaurant operators versus these long-term full-service operators. And lastly, as it pertains to the Oregon locations, they did actually have some issues with their upcoming location in Beaverton, Oregon, wherein their application to build in Beaverton was initially shot down by their planning commission last year, but it has now been approved. And before their Oregon expansion, their furthest west location was actually Boise, Idaho, which was surprising to both you and I, Trent. And so we talk about this expansion, and it leads to their final number of stores for this fiscal third quarter. They now have 644 company-owned locations, and overall, they now have around four company-owned Holler and Dash Biscuit House locations across 44 states, so between the two operations there. I did want to mention I had talked about the marketing efforts by the company. They are saying that they're going to be investing a little bit more on social media, again, trying to target different areas of the country with different promotions. And you highlighted some very good promotions they had during this latest quarter. They did announce some new fourth quarter limited time offerings, and they feature and this, I got to be honest, really increased my appetite during the reading of this podcast. But the strawberry French toast is going to be a limited time rollout, along with the peppermill steak and eggs and the new s'mores dessert that you had mentioned alongside those campfire entrees. So a lot going on here, and they are certainly trying to take advantage of every aspect they can in terms of garnering market share and potentially increasing traffic. Although the company didn't seem too pessimistic in the fact that they've had lower traffic numbers over the last several quarters, but I feel like these limited time offerings and the regional marketing campaigns are going to do them justice when it comes to at least keeping the traffic levels at adequate rates. And you look at their TV advertising campaign, how they highlighted their daily lunch price point. Again, a message of not only product differentiation, but price differentiation. And they need to hit on all cylinders if they're going to have a successful 2017 and come into their own with those earnings per share guidance increases. Food Focus listeners, do you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never quite tastes as good as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop? Let me let you in on a secret. Coffee shops spend thousands of dollars to make the perfect water for making coffee. Even the coffee shops we talk about right here on the Food Focus podcast. And now for as little as 10 cents per cup, you can duplicate that magic at home. 
third wave water has a patent pending formula of minerals that when added to a gallon of distilled water makes for coffee brewing magic. Recently at the U.S. Brewers Cup Championship, both the first and second place finishers brewed their coffee with third wave water. I mentioned on the retail focus this week that I tried third wave water last week. My French presses, the coffee really did have a depth of flavor that you just can't get from typical distilled or tap water. So check out their website at thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code FOCUS, that's F-O-C-U-S, for 10% off your first order. Again, that's Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. Our third story comes to us courtesy of Nation's Restaurant News. Is Golden Corral, the buffet chain, completes their nationwide rollout of weekday brunch. They've recently updated their franchisee page to reflect the change as well. A little bit about Golden Corral. As we mentioned, they are a buffet chain. They have massive market share in the $4.5 billion buffet segment. They claim on their website that their market share is 38.1% in the United States. Now, this doesn't seem to cover the pizza operators or the pizza buffet operators, but rather the kind of full-service buffet operators, if you will. This is a story that we both saw the advertising for before the actual rollout of the brunch was completed. Completed and before Nation's Restaurant News had published information about the story. And honestly, this is perhaps a way that they can set themselves apart as a franchise buffet apart from some of the local buffets that may have that preference difference in terms of quality and freshness, considering that a breakfast buffet or a brunch buffet is something that a lot of independent operators don't have simply because it takes more time in the day and a little bit more prep time, or at least the prep time has to start earlier. Now the details of this promotion. The official rollout started on the Monday of this week, May 22nd. Other locations had actually started offerings before this date in the Golden Corral chain. Every day, brunch will be held between 9.30 a.m. and 2 p.m., so it dovetails right with their lunch segment, which had, previous to this announcement, started at 10.30. Customers will be able to partake in things like French toast, omelets, and biscuits and gravy, which, of course, are all breakfast foods, skillets as well. And then there are brunch-tailored offerings like mini burgers and fried chicken that, of course, you can pair with the eggs and biscuits and gravy. Brunch offerings, more like your typical lunch portions, at least in terms of how it's advertised on the website. But we should mention that these aren't completely new products for Golden Corral because most Golden Corral restaurants, the grand majority of Golden Corral restaurants, already offer breakfast on the weekends. This is just a matter of unlocking some of what they already knew how to do for the weekdays and trying to bring a larger customer base in because their customer base had been flagging. Leighton will talk about that in a second. The tests and previous rollouts for brunch throughout the week had occurred in several different markets in the U.S. The company has a wide network of units in the United States with 481 total. Most of those are franchised. 408 of those are franchised, so above 80% franchised restaurants in the U.S. 73 of their Golden Corral restaurants in the U.S. are company-operated. They're in 41 states, including Alaska. But their test markets, Albuquerque, New Mexico, which gets used quite a bit, as a test market, and then three markets in the southeastern United States, Jacksonville, Florida, Mobile, Alabama, and Greenville, North Carolina, for the past six months had tried out this new brunch offering, and they found that being open this much earlier, offering that different mix of food that much earlier, led to higher sales, traffic, and profit at 
these locations. Golden Corral already has tremendous gross sales numbers in the restaurant industry. They average $3.5 million in annualized sales per location, or at least they did in 2016. This, though, the $3.5 million is taking into account the fact that they have two different sized models. One is about a 300-seat model, another a 400-seat model, but still $3.5 million in average unit volume per year. It's amazing for Golden Corral, and if they can increase that into the $4 million range, they'd be one of the best operators in all of the restaurant industry. Yeah, if you talk about those average unit volumes, you can see that the franchisees should already be fairly excited. However, we don't know their margins because they are a privately held company. Company management says they were looking for ways to help franchisees grow in terms of comps and yearly revenue. But we have to keep in mind and put it in perspective that boosting these top line revenue figures is going to help the franchise in general as they get a 4% gross royalty from continuing operations. And we look at those same store sales and they were said to be lagging due to the competitive nature of the restaurant industry. So really the macroeconomic view is that restaurants overall are struggling to gain market share, sort of the theme of this podcast. Golden Corral, even though they have had struggles in the past, you can see that those top line revenue figures, those average unit volumes have helped keep a lot of franchisees alive. And if you go on their website, they have a lot of success stories borne out about the idea of franchisees starting with maybe one location and building out an entire portfolio. And Golden Corral CEO Lance Trenary said that it really is born out of that idea that obviously comp sales and meal growth has been difficult to come by. Looking for strategic opportunities to expand the day part and bring about more options and more choice for our guests. And he added that brunch is inherently a buffet occasion anyway and lends itself to Golden Corral's format. And that brings me to the strategy here. If obviously their main goal here is to drive more individual sales for franchisees and the company overall, we can see that this is actually a contrarian view to what a lot of analysts had pegged in the past. We Think about breakfast as a grab-and-go meal, says the NPD chief in the food service practice, Warren Solocheck. And the NPD group has really looked into the restaurant industry over the last dozen years or so. And in 2016, their industry forecast said that 15% of family dining restaurants will actually be targeting the breakfast day part, as well as 16% of quick service and fast casual restaurants. But he said this is the main target for restaurants is to get the breakfast and get out. So this, is, again, is not necessarily en route to the idea that they are going to be customers that want to sit down and take their time and have that all-you-can-eat buffet breakfast. But interesting enough, as you had mentioned, Trent, through several pilot programs, they have seen a lot of success, and they did it in a very smart, tactical way And that they went throughout the United States, not just in one particular market, but in several markets. It's unclear, though, as to how many of those were actually franchisee locations versus company-owned locations, but still, the success was there. And so I think regardless of whether breakfast is viewed as more of an in-and-out, grab-and-go type of segment, I think there really is an opportunity here for Golden Corral to take advantage of the open market. You see, 
overall sales in the breakfast industry has been increasing. And we talk a lot about other smaller restaurants in the QSR space that have been trying to take advantage of the bigger industry. We talk about Subway, Taco Bell as just two in the QSR industry, but then also rumors of Chipotle eyeing the breakfast industry. So I think they're really ahead of the game here and trying to really make themselves a bit more agile in their respective industry. And you see a lot of social media campaigns surrounding this for Golden Corral. They've been advertising this for a little while now before the official rollout. And it's interesting because they've been able to take advantage of some of the items they have already been serving to their customers, both on the lunch and dinner portions of their menu. You see that fresh fruit and vegetables were advertised as part of the breakfast campaign and other things like ham and chicken that were also readily available before. And you look at how this makes for a seamless transition from the operations side of the business. We talk about some problems that may arise for the company in terms of logistics, getting more things inside the restaurants. However, this is really looking to be like a very easy transition for the company and company executives as most of what they're going to be buying here for the breakfast and brunch part of their day is already been procured in the past because they've had breakfast programs for the weekend opening around 7 to 7.30, servicing those customers. And then also you speak of things like the ham and the other proteins that they serve during the dinner portion of their menus. You can see that there are going to be a lot of synergies. The short-term problem being the blitz in the advertising campaigns, that's going to be a short-term expense for the company. But you can see that through this new ad campaign, the Your Choice Rules campaign really helps all segments of their business because they're giving way to the idea that you can come into a Golden Corral and get more and more options for you and your family. The long-term expenditures, of course, being the staffing. And I actually personally live by a Golden Corral and have witnessed how they operate over the last few years. And you could see that even before they open, typical restaurants, Trent, you had mentioned a 10.30 time. Between 10.30 and 11 a.m. is when they open typically for their lunch customers. But before that, well before that, two to three hours before that, there's already two to three employees preparing foods and supplies and getting ready to open for the day. And I think you just add a few more employees. Obviously, that's going to cost you in the long run. But there were already employees servicing the location and the food was already there. So these are important points to make to make this a long term sustainable move for Golden Corral. Finally, it's important for us to talk about pricing regarding Golden Corral. Management was clear that pricing might be different throughout the country, but we'll land around $8.99 for an all-you-can-eat breakfast or brunch buffet. Dinner after 4 p.m. tends to be a bit more around $10, and sometimes when there are premium meats included, these meals tend to be a bit more expensive. Beverages not included in either circumstance, but again, you're adding breakfast foods to what was already your lunch buffet that is after 10.30 because as Leighton mentioned they open often from 10.30 to 11 so this is as close to all day breakfast as Golden Corral is probably going to get but if it does drive a significant amount of traffic then they'll be in good shape going forward and I don't see them adding an all day breakfast option or selling some of those items those skillets those eggs that type of thing all day because they do use all of their prep space for dinner. It's not like anything goes unused in a Golden Corral, and they already have one of the largest kitchens 
in the business. So I was kind of curious to see what other operators had insofar as brunch offerings during the week for buffet operators. Many buffet operators, as I mentioned in the outset, are pizza-based buffets. So here we're going to be looking at the full-service buffets, those that aren't just a pizza-centric buffet. The most notable full-service buffets in the U.S. besides Golden Corral Largely Western Sizzlin, Sirloin Stockade, and then the Old Ovation Brands Group, Hometown Buffet, Ryan's, and Old Country Buffet, the three of those. Let's talk about each of these. Western Sizzlin, which is owned by Biglari Holdings, which also owns Steak and Shake, took a hit in quarter one of 2017. Sales were down nearly 10% from quarter one of 2016. They have around 75 locations, none of which appear to have regular breakfast holdings whatsoever. In fact, not even on the weekends do they have breakfast. They focus almost entirely on steaks, mostly with lunch and dinner at their locations. Sirloin Stockade has around 25 locations. They share real estate near a Cracker Barrel. They are very much an interstate-based business. Most of their 25 locations are in the Midwest. And they do not have breakfast or brunch either. Ovation Brands is kind of an interesting story. System-wide, if you're using a food service term, they've been a little bit of a grease fire overall. To talk about the last decade for Ovation Brands, they initially filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in January 2008. They emerged in 2009. They filed again for Chapter 11 in January of 2012. They gave, as a result of that, their lenders a controlling equity stake. And then recently, they closed 92 locations overnight. That was over a quarter of their locations in March of 2016 after they did the same with 74 of their restaurants in February. So closed over 160 restaurants over the course of two months in 2016. The closings came after Ovation's owner, which is Buffet's LLC, which is owned by Food Management Partners, entered bankruptcy restructuring on behalf of Ovation. Food Management Partners bought Ovation back in 2015. By the way, they also faced a bunch of legal issues from landlords following all the abrupt closures in 2016, some of which are now only beginning to be settled. So not a good last decade for Ovation Brands. And this was all after their CEO was featured actually on Undercover Boss or on an Undercover Boss episode in 2013, hailed as a turnaround CEO. Obviously not turned around just yet. Anyway, they have a weekend breakfast on Saturday and Sunday, do Ovation Brands. Only at select locations, seems to be most of their locations. As I was maneuvering through their website, about 80 to 90% of their locations do have weekend breakfast with that open at 7 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday, but no weekday breakfast, and their buffets just open at 11. So this could be a big windfall for Golden Corral if they're able to play their cards just right, and I'm sure franchisees, even though they might feel a little bit of short-term pressure regarding the move, may end up liking the move in the long term. Well, we move on to our last story. This story has to do with something Trent had alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, sweets and treats. The Sweets and Snacks Expo is underway in Chicago, and it runs through May 25th. It started on May 23rd, and it's an annual event where major global brands introduce their new research and development items, among other things. Monica Waltris has an excellent write-up in the Food Business News about the first day of the expo, where there are some clear trends beginning to emerge About the expo, there's more than 800 companies that visited it this year, including 200 first-time attendees. This speaks to the recent growth and diversification in the value-added snack industry as more operators seek to capitalize on recent food trends. But while the major food brands all have a presence, we're seeing a greater trend towards 
using diversified product bases, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Frito-Lay and Hershey's are examples of the companies that are a little bit behind in that regard. We'll also get to the taste trends in a moment, but first we look at the business trends throughout the movement. Again, it started on Tuesday this week, May 23rd, and runs through Thursday, which is a little bit odd overall. If you look at a normal exhibition of this type, it usually runs towards the latter half of the week. But overall, you can see that 17,000 industry professionals attended it. And Trent, you and I have looked at some of the pictures so far at the event. It's a busy event, and you and I both wish we could be there. But most of the business trends center around transparency of new products, reducing calorie counts by limiting serving size, and incorporating either better ingredients or more ethically or sustainably sourced ingredients, something that you and I have talked about for quite some time. And a lot of things people in the candy industry have been pushing a partnership between Mars, Nestle, Ferrero, and Lint underscore this movement. And by 2022, they say they want half of their individually wrapped products from these companies to be about 200 calories or less. You look at the current benchmark, it's around 250 calories or less. And although this would help some watching calories, it also helps the companies in a way since they're able to sell an individually wrapped bar that is 20% smaller for the same price in theory. And this, again, is another thing that we've talked about for some time and that these companies have been able to extract greater contribution margin by adjusting the size of their candies. And it looks well at the same time because you're reducing those calorie counts also. They say that the goal will be met through new packaging, i.e. smaller products and product reformulation, removing some sugars, and we've seen that throughout the cereal industry, and innovation. Overall, we see a lot of new products being marketed that have less than 200 calories. But Trent, what is interesting here and what is probably most interesting to our listeners is the overarching food trends. Yeah, some of the food trends that were spied, there were seven of them, again from Monica Watrous of Food Business News. And overall, some of these food trends have already hit other categories, whereas some are kind of native to the sweet and snack category. We begin with the first food trend they found, which is spicy candy. And as we talk about some of these, we'll talk about kind of the genesis of this food trend and what it might mean for the industry as a whole. Spicy candy isn't terrifically new. Fruit laced with chili powder and candy with chili powder has been popular for some time, especially in areas with a large Hispanic population or the southwestern United States. Red Hots, Fireball, Hot Tamales, if you're looking at hot in terms of spicy cinnamon rather than capsaicin-based spice, those have been out for forever. But here at this conference, they're unveiling Skittles and Starburst with both research and development sweet heat extensions, or what they're calling sweet heat extensions, with three flavors available in each. Smaller operators have been using a lot of mango habanero, which has kind of come from the restaurant spaces. Operators like Buffalo Wild Wings, who we discussed earlier, have been able to use that in sauces with great success. Warheads is bringing out a new Hot Heads brand extension with that capsaicin-based spice. Overall, I think this has its origins more than anything. You, you can kind of spy the mango habanero thing and, and also the food movements in the southwestern United States. But I think Sriracha's newfound popularity over the past five to ten years has helped out in this category 
Sriracha as a hot sauce tends to be a little bit sweeter than its Tabasco-esque, the vinegary cousins that it has out there. And because you've got this sweet and spicy mix so often in ordinary food and savory food, you're seeing this kind of emerge in the candy space as well. The second food trend is one that the snack and candy industry is only now catching up to, which is artisan and craft. And I think this says how much operators like Frito-Lay and Hershey's are kind of behind, but they're now realizing that they can mark up products based on packaging and a sense of the artisanal, which also tends to boost margins. We talk about beer companies sometimes doing this. Larger beer companies have been doing this for a while now with the likes of Shock Top, made by Anheuser-Busch or InBev, and then Third Shift, which is a Molson Coors product, Blue Moon, another Molson Coors product, kind of disguising themselves as artisanal offerings that are made by Macrop, Operators, and they're starting to see a lot of it at this conference from the larger operators as well. A third trend is increased crunch. What became popular through Crackle and Crunch Bars is now a little more popular throughout the candy industry. There's now trolley candies with a cruncher's line. Typically, trolley are gummies. But now they're coming out with a crunchy line. The biggest, most notable product, at least to me in this space, is the new Reese's Crunchy Cookie Cups. Longtime listeners will recall our foreshadowing of the Oreo Milka release last year, and you're starting to see ad campaigns surrounding that. This is Hershey's attempt to kind of introduce one of their own, but with their own twist. These have a traditional Reese's peanut butter cup, but instead of just peanut butter on the inside, you've got bits of Oreo-like cookie within the peanut butter. It's not Oreo-branded. So it's just kind of generic chocolate cookie crumbs within the peanut butter. There are two other brand extensions based off of this concept for Reese's as well that are more portable or poppable. Interestingly enough, in an era where a lot of people are going gluten-free or going into product creation with the idea that they're going to make something gluten-free, this product is not gluten-free. However, late in the packaging is 200 calories, which would fit within that earlier pledge that several candy companies have been making. And then the final food trend that I'll cover from the Sweets and Snacks Expo in Chicago before sending it to Layton for the last three is birthday cake flavors. This seems to be a very on-point trend. The birthday cake flavor is extended past just ice cream into just about everything. It used to be that ice cream and jelly bellies were pretty much the only thing where you had the birthday cake flavor. And now you can get just about anything in birthday cake flavor. New products here include Hammond's Popcorn, Red Vines, Twistettes. So you've got licorice tasting like birthday cake, bubble gum tasting like birthday cake, and this is from Bubblelicious, though Extra has actually had limited time offerings with this flavor in the past, Extra made by Wrigley's, and Dippin' Dots cookie dough chunks that are meant to taste like birthday cakes. An interesting side story regarding birthday cake flavors, there was one time I worked at a retailer a long time ago and the freezers broke and the employees got to take home basically whatever we wanted because we were going to throw out the product from the freezers anyway. We had already gotten credit for it through our vendors, and it was rather cold outside. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take as much of this frozen merchandise as I possibly could because I could just throw it outside, out back of where I lived at the time. Whatever calories I could get at the time was a positive thing. And in the stash I took, I had a lot of uh, Bluebell ice cream, and they had a, a birthday cake flavor. And that night when I took home the ice cream, I ate an entire tub of that Bluebell ice cream that's birthday cake flavor, and now I can't do birthday cake anything any longer. It's not that the ice cream was bad. It was very good. That's why I ate an entire tub of it, but it's kind of one of those things when you get ill on something or when you eat so much of something, you don't really want it for a long period of time, and it's been over a decade, well over 
over a decade since that last happened, and I still can't eat anything that's birthday cake flavored. But uh, Leighton, I, I know that's probably not the case with our last three food trends because they all sound very tasty to me. As we go through the last three items here, you can see that the fifth one is actually something that I've become very familiar with over the recent past. And it's another very strong trend that a lot of people have been looking towards for either cooking or the health and beauty sector. And this is coconut oil. This is something that I've actually been using as an alternative to vegetable oils, the more conventional oils you use during all types of cooking. This is something that I use during the breakfast time if I'm making eggs or potatoes. But again, it's used in multiple areas, not only health and beauty and for cooking, but they're using it in popcorn, potato chips, Jackson's Honest is a brand there, and bean snacks, where they're all included with coconut oil. And honestly, we have talked about using the avocado chip, where there are a lot of chips that are used with coconut oil or cooked with coconut oil. And this is interesting because uh, the avocado chip is something that really has itself taken some ground away from other conventional chips. And then we move on to garbanzo-based snacks, which of course is the chickpea. And the chickpea rose to prominence as hummus became ubiquitous. Now, though, it is being used in several savory snacks in several different ways. This is not unusual to anyone who has eaten a gluten-free diet because the chickpea flour is actually a main component of a lot of gluten-free snack food. And gluten-free, obviously, is a trend that we've talked about over the last year and a half. And then Gobitos from GLK Foods features roasted chickpeas, crunchy in texture and in various flavors. And then Hippies are chickpea puffs, also in various flavors. And Saffron Road makes chickpea crisps in different flavors as well. You talk about the Daily Crave uses chickpea flour as a base for their chips. In fact, and number seven, our last piece of food trend news comes by way of the chocolate bark, and it's been used for snacking primarily because it carries less calories. You, you talk about chocolate bark being a little bit thinner, a little bit calorically less dense than other similar snacks, and this is basically a year-round variant of peppermint bark. The idea is to create thin, snackable chocolate, again, to reduce those calories overall, but you can add things into that chocolate bark, certain nuts and things of that nature to create even more texture, which people have been doing. But our personal trends to watch are starch alternatives and snacks above and beyond potatoes. Chickpeas are a good start, but will include a number of bean flours and tapioca flours moreover. More sweet and salty in areas traditionally dominated by salty. We're seeing this right now in sunflower seeds with the brand Spitz and also salted caramel and sweet chili extensions. And Giants has kettle cooked versions that are sweeter than their traditional offerings. And then Boom Chicka Pop, a bagged popcorn, has significant success here recently with seasonal kettle corns like peppermint bark and pumpkin pie. And then lastly, within this small category, we see sweet potato chips are becoming a little bit more popular. And I personally have liked the addition into my veggie sticks where they're using sweet potatoes and, and trying to fill in to get a larger flavor base. Two other trends that we're watching, at least on the Food Focus, over the next year in sweets and snacks, uh, talking about the Sweets and Snacks Expo in Chicago, the continued rising costs of chocolate. It, it seemed as though chocolate prices might plateau last year or even early this year with the rest of food deflation taking place, but that just hasn't been the case. 
Now with food inflation about to return, at least a number of people think it's about to return, perhaps in the next year or even as soon as in a couple of months, it seems as though the prices will just continue to rise. Part of this is being born out of increasing demand in Brazil, China, and Russia, all while production of cocoa is waning. This may be forestalled with a reduction in serving size, so you'll end up paying the same price, but for a smaller serving, as we noted earlier with the cut down to 200 calories or the attempted cut down to 200 calories, but probably not for long. So you'll see over time chocolate prices go up. And because of this, one other thing that we're watching is the potential separation of price points at the check stand. For years, candy bars at the check stand on the front end of a grocery store or another general merchant merchandise retailer have been a fairly uniform cost even across different brands they've been a fairly uniform cost but soon because of the increase in chocolate costs you may see distributors or major chains employ separate price points for non-chocolate candy and I was talking to someone that works in distribution of candy earlier this week in an attempt to kind of suss out what might be a trend here and they mentioned that in order to continue having something on the front end that serves as an impulse buy, having a non-chocolate candy up there that's under a dollar or under a dollar fifty in a typical convenience store is going to retain that impulse buy status for the candy, and that may no longer be possible for chocolate bars and chocolate makers as the price of cocoa continues to increase going forward. Well, we've reached the conclusion of the Food Focus podcast where each Leighton and I talk about one item that's new to the world of food or at least new to us that we've tried over the last week. And Leighton, we begin with you. What I tried has to do with something we had talked about throughout this podcast, and that is breakfast. Typically, I have Nature's Path oatmeal, which I had talked about last year doing a Food Focus podcast. And this time I tried an extension of their breakfast offerings, this with their cereal. So Nature's Path has a variety of cereals now, and you can visit that on their website and look at their different varieties. But this really struck my eye because it looked like something that was going to be sweet, and it was. It is the Sunrise Nature's Path Crunchy Honey Cereal. It was a 10.6-ounce box. And really, if you look at the cereal and compare it to other conventional cereals, those big-name cereals, it is interesting because the taste is almost exactly the same as something that is similar on the store shelves. And you can see the price point is very similar as well. And that's really what, in my opinion, sets this brand apart from others and that the organic offerings here are a little bit similar in price point. The MSRP is around $6. I got it for around 4 at my local natural grocers. But you can see the ingredients. The majority of them are, again, are organic. You start off with brown rice flour, whole grain corn cornmeal and then move on you have things like honey in there flax seeds all of those other substitutes that are organic in nature and you see that the sugar content which is something I wanted to highlight here above all else is fairly low eight grams of sugar whereas again if you look and compare to a conventional cup of cereal you're looking at anywhere from 15 on up to even 40 grams per sugar this is something that a lot of consumers have been looking at as of late because obviously children eat cereal so you are looking to try to reduce that sugar content but again it did not detract from the taste I enjoyed it. The one thing I will say is the, the box is fairly small. So despite that price point being like those other conventional brands, it was not that much cereal overall. You see that two thirds of a cup was listing as a serving size and there's about 10 of those per package. 
I personally ate about one third of a box, which is several servings worth during my first time eating the cereal, but a very good buy. Again, you can buy it either from their website or other websites, or like I did, go to Natural Grocers and pick one up for yourself. Well, my review isn't over necessarily one particular product, but followers on Twitter will note that I went to the Hop Jam, or what is called the Hop Jam, hosted by the band Hanson in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa being where the band Hanson is from. Of course, the band Hanson, most notably popular for the 90s song that came out, Mbop, but they're actually kind of indie musicians now. And so I went to this beer festival in part because it is one of the best ones in the nation, or supposedly one of the best ones in the nation, and I will say it actually lived up to its billing. I tried a number of different beers that I've never had before, a number of different limited distribution beers. Among my favorite, one was from Bitter Sisters Brewing Company in Texas called Hissy Fit, which is a Marzen lager, had a great Marzen taste to it, that traditional Oktoberfest style taste, but it was lighter than some of the seasonal offerings, something like a Bob's 47 from Boulevard that you would otherwise get that time of year. So it was a very sessionable beer. One of the ones I liked the most was a red rye ale from Bricktown Brewery in Oklahoma City called Millie McFadden's Red Rye Ale. It's a little bit lighter in terms of alcohol content, and it had a nice herbal essence and, of course, that dry finish that goes with a lot of red rye ales. But I was honestly surprised because I like richer, deeper beers. I'm a big fan of IPAs and things like rye ales and, and all of that. And yet my favorite beer that I tried was something called Willy Vanilli from Alpine Beer Company out in California. And this beer from Alpine Beer Company ended up being perfect for the type of day it was. Typically, you have vanilla stouts and vanilla porters. All of that is very popular. This is the first time I've ever had a wheat beer with vanilla. And sometimes wheat ales that are flavored end up being far too sweet. But this is the perfect balance of the vanilla and the wheat beer. It is very sessionable and a great summer beer above all. I think it was excellent on tap at this particular beer festival. Now, as far as the music was concerned, you know, a lot of popular acts were there, including Congos and, of course, Hanson themselves performed. And they were inducted into the Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame before their production. Overall, it was well worth the cost of admission and if you were anywhere near the Tulsa Oklahoma area I was fortunate to be near that area over the course of the weekend check it out it is well worth it again the hop jam in Tulsa presented by who else but the Hanson brothers by the way the Hanson brothers have their own beer company and they had one of their beers on tap it's called mm hops and I tried it it's supposed to be a pale ale it tastes a lot more like an amber and it's over seven percent in terms of alcohol by volume just a little bit syrupy for a pale ale but it it wasn't bad especially given what it is That'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast for Leighton. I'm Trent saying so long until next time. Again, this episode of the Food Focus has been brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. Check us out on Twitter at the Food Focus. We'll be back with Retail Focus later this week. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries.